Uh, Lord, we pray the words of Psalm 103 back to you. Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being. Praise your holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all your benefits, who forgives all our sins and heals all our diseases, who redeems our lives from the pit and crowns us with love and compassion, who satisfies our desires with good things so that our youth is renewed like eagles. Lord, we acknowledge your glory this morning. We know that apart from you, we have nothing, Lord, and that you are so, so good to us in the many, many ways that you bless us, uh, most of all, the blessing of salvation through Jesus and his shed blood. And so we praise you for who you are this morning. We ask now as we open up your word to the book of James, uh, we know that you're among us, and so we ask that by your spirit you would soften our hearts uh, to these truths and you would open our minds uh, to learn what you would have us learn this morning. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, twice a month on Wednesday evening, if you were to show up here at Crossview, uh, you would see 30 or 40 kids and another dozen or so volunteers milling around uh, helping with our children's ministry program called Blast Off Kids. Uh, Pastor Trevor and his team do an amazing job of discipling that uh, kind of fifth grade and under demographic and training them up to walk with Jesus. And as they seek to learn some foundational truths from Scripture, um, they're relying largely on a resource that was um, co-written and co-adapted by the late pastor and author Tim Keller. And it's called uh, the New City Catechism. So this is the kids' version. Uh, there's also an adult version, and there's even an app if you don't want to uh, buy anything. But I highly recommend this resource to you. Um, if you know how catechisms work, or if you don't, uh, the way that they go is there's um, a series of questions and answers dealing with uh, things about the nature of who God is and who Christ is and who we are and, and the reality of the world that we live in. And so there's 52 questions in this one. Um, but the catechism opens up um, with question number one, which is, what is our only hope in life and death? And if we hadn't just sent all the kids out to Sunday school, you'd probably hear them shout some answers, because this is the first question, so the one that they've reviewed the most. Well, the answer, rooted in Romans chapter 14, is that we are not our own, but we belong to God. We are not our own, but we belong to God. And what a great truth for kids to learn, right? I wish that at age 35 that had sunk in a little bit more than it has, but sanctification can be a slower process for some of us, right? Well, if I were to ask you that question this morning, what is your only hope in life and death, how would you answer? What is your only hope in life and death? Or how about this instead? Let's reframe. If I were to go through your phone, and if I were to scroll through your text messages and the articles that you've been reading and your shopping history and your web searches, what conclusion would I come to as I tried to answer that question for you? Or what if I were to show up at your house and walk through the various rooms and see your things. What story would they tell about what matters most to you, about where you've placed your hope? Well, for far too many of us in this relatively very wealthy United States, we would see a tragic story 
right? One where wealth and accumulation of stuff is where our hope lies. The passage uh, that we're going to deal with this morning heavily looks at this question of hope. And James is going to address two different groups of people. First, uh, in James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, just before what Jeff read for us, he's going to address the rich people. And then in the second half, as we heard, he's going to address Christians who are experiencing suffering, much of that suffering at the hands of the rich. So if you would, please open up with me to James chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. In the Worship Center Bible, it's on page 979. If you have your own Bible, uh, open up to James. It's at the, towards the very end of the New Testament. We also have it available uh, in the YouVersion app. If you want to check out the sermon notes there, um, you are welcome to. As you turn uh, to James chapter 5, uh, just some quick background. So most commentators think that these first six verses that I'm going to read in just a minute are not actually written to believers uh, like the rest of the book is, right? The rest of the book targets uh, the 12 tribes that are scattered among the nations. We know that from chapter 1. Um, but this section seems to be directed at these rich landowners who have abused their wealth and their workers, You'll notice that unlike the typical James section that we've become familiar with, there's no call to repentance here. There's no command for change, no suggestion for improvement or, or some nudge towards Christ-likeness. James, in this section, seems to take on the voice of an Old Testament prophet. And it's pretty intense, honestly, the stuff that he says here. So um, follow along as I read these first six verses of James chapter 5. He says, now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. It's pretty rough, right? James' words there. His main point here seems to be something like destruction is coming for those who place their hope in their riches. Destruction is coming for those whose hope is in their riches. Now, if these verses are written to wealthy landowners in the first century who are abusing Christians and their workers, why are they here? Well, remember what Pastor Dan has often said over the last couple of years of his preaching. He's reminded us that the Bible wasn't written to us, but it was written for us. And that's true here, too. Not many of us, right, are withholding fair wages from our workers or murdering innocent people by our actions as they work for us, right? Although, there's probably uh, some thought to be given and maybe something to be said here about responsible purchasing and strongly considering uh, who and where we buy our products, right? Because the truth is, most of us are all too happy uh, just to ignore the terrible conditions that we're well aware of, uh, that our products are manufactured in, in the name of saving a few bucks. 
right? But that's a conversation probably for another time. So if we aren't actively murdering workers, or as verse 6 says, murdering the innocent one who was not opposing you, then what does these first six verses have to do with us? Well, let me share a story with you that might help you see. So as you know, um, maybe you know, maybe you don't know, the book Pilgrim's Progress, you've heard of this? Uh, Pilgrim's Progress, up until pretty recently, the last 20 or 30 years, was uh, the number two best-selling book in human history, uh, just behind the Bible. Um, I have not read Pilgrim's Progress, but I did pick this up, Little Pilgrim's Progress, um, at a conference that some of the pastors were at um, last fall. And the story of Pilgrim's Progress is a strong allegory for the Christian life. It follows a man named Christian uh, as he leaves, at least the children's version, as he leaves uh, the, the city of destruction and heads on to the celestial city. And then the second half of the book uh, follows his female counterpart, uh, Christiana, and um, her siblings. And so along the way, they encounter friends and foes and people who help and people who hinder. And I would highly recommend this book to you. Uh, we have a copy of it in uh, the resource section in our Cross Connect room. But whether you have kids, you have grandkids, you don't have any kids, you're single, you're married, whatever your situation is, uh, this book particularly the children's version, is excellent. You will be encouraged and challenged and grow in your understanding of what it means to walk with the Lord and, and to carry out your life. So I highly recommend this to you. I'm not getting a kickback for saying that, so this is just purely I, I love this resource, and uh, it's been a huge blessing for our family. So anyway, um, the, the story that I'm going to read for you, little uh, Christiana and her siblings have just entered by the narrow gate. So they've just started their Christian walk, and they're headed to the cross. Um, and at the very beginning, uh, just before that, they go to the house of the interpreter. And the interpreter is a friend who helps them and equips them uh, before they go out on this long journey. So listen here as uh, the story picks up. So it says, when the children had rested for a short time, the interpreter took them to see his beautiful picture of the good shepherd. That's Jesus. Even baby innocents understood how the little lamb, that's us, had been lost upon the mountains and had been in sad trouble until the good shepherd had found it and taken it in his arms. After this, the old badger brought his little visitors into a dull, dark room where a miserable-looking bear was working busily. The floor of the room was covered with straws and sticks, and the bear held a rake in his hand, with which he was collecting all the rubbish into a heap. He did not look up when the interpreter opened the door, and he seemed to care for nothing but his sticks and straws. What is he collecting them for? asked Matthew. He thinks they are very precious, replied the interpreter. He has been serving the wicked prince for a long time, and he believes that someday... In the midst of these useless straws, he will find a wonderful treasure. The king is sorry for him. And every day he sends a messenger to offer him a golden crown instead of straws. As the interpreter spoke, he pointed upward. And when the children raised their heads, they saw above them in the air the beautiful figure of an angel holding a bright crown in its hand. But he doesn't see it, said Mercy. No, said the interpreter. He will not look up. Tears came into Christiana's eyes. I am afraid I was just like him, she said. I did not care about the king and his city, but I do care now. Will he never look up? asked James. Joseph added, how long will the angel wait for him? I cannot tell you, 
replied the interpreter. The king is very merciful and very patient. But the bear is so sure that he will find his treasure hidden in the rubbish that I do not know whether he will ever listen to the angel's voice. Sticks and straws. Maybe you're like me and you've wasted an awful lot of time raking sticks and straws, hoping that one of them will turn out to be a treasure that will fill my discontented soul with something like joy. But you already know, just just like the bear has experienced day after day, no object has ever brought any of us more than temporary, fleeting happiness. And then it's on to the next thing, right? Because maybe, just maybe, as I pull that rake again, I'll uncover something magical that can transform my life. Sticks and straws. And he thinks they are very precious. This text wasn't written to us. It was written to oppressive and abusive and murderous rich people in the first century. But my goodness, it was written for us, wasn't it? For me, at least. A quick stroll through my house or a scroll through my phone and my shopping history and you'll have no trouble identifying some of the idols that I have held on to with a death grip for far too long. And to what end? To what end? They can't fill us. Our riches can't save us. They can't satisfy us. They rot and they tarnish and they corrode and they testify against us on the day of judgment. And they fatten on the day of slaughter. They do not save. They only condemn. Destruction is coming for those whose hope is in their riches. Now, none of this is to say that having money is a bad thing, right? Money on its own is not a moral object. It's how we deal with our money that morality comes in. Our finances can be a hugely powerful tool for God's kingdom, right? Churches need money to carry out their ministries, and and missionaries need money to serve where they're called, and, and parachurch organizations need money to function, You as families and individuals understand you need money to live in this world. It's part of life, right? But but there's this phrase that pops up from time to time, and we've all heard this, and, and, and we hear it right here, right? Money is the root of all evil. You've heard this, yes? Money is the root of all evil. But the problem with this is it's it's totally wrong. This is, this is not correct. Money is not the root of all evil. And, and what inspired this is actually from 1 Timothy chapter 6, and it says this, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Did you catch the difference? Money is the root of all evil. No, no. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith. And we've pierced ourselves with many griefs. Money can be used for tremendous good. Or it can be used to further entrench you in materialism and consumerism and ultimately in idolatry. And so, if you're stuck this morning, 
If you see yourself in the picture of that bear and you recognize God's hand of conviction on you, don't run from that. Don't run from that. Press into it and ask that by his Holy Spirit he would continue to convict you and help you to be so enamored with Jesus that as this old hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. It would be great if it was true of us. Turn from your riches and gaze upon the face of Jesus. James then shifts his attention from you rich people back to the brothers and sisters in verses verses 7 and following. And in in the second half of uh, this passage, James is going to give us three pictures that help us understand our task. As I reread these verses, uh, keep in mind who they were written to. Remember, they're to to believers who have been exploited, whose wages have been unpaid. And for for people in the first century, um, particularly those working in these fields, missing a paycheck was was awful. They couldn't afford to miss a day's wages. They're people who have seen their friends and their neighbors, maybe their family members, innocent people killed like they didn't even matter. And to those who are suffering so deeply at the hands of the wealthy, James writes this. Read verses, or listen to verses 7 through 12 as I read them again. He says, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. To those suffering, James says, be patient until the Lord's coming. Well, how? Three pictures. First, the farmer. Wisconsin is an agricultural state, so it's not that difficult for us to understand the point that he's making here. Right In the springtime or the off-season, the fields are prepared and fertilizer is put down and dirt is cultivated and, and seeds are planted. And then the waiting game begins. And nowadays, some of those fields have those big sprinkler systems that supplement the rain, but that obviously wasn't the case in the first century. There may have been some ditches dug to uh, help the rain and the water get along uh, the trenches so that the seeds could be watered as they need, but it was still, the whole system was dependent upon rain. And so, in patience, year after year after year, farmers would plant their crops and then wait on the rain. They couldn't know when it would come or how often it would come or even if the rain would come that year, right? Sure, last year it came, but this year could be a drought. There's no guarantee that the harvest season would be the same. And yet, year after year after year, they planted 
and still plant and patiently await the rain that causes growth. In the same way, James says, you and I, in the midst of our suffering, are to be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. As um, pastors at Crossview, it's our great privilege to sit in messy stuff with each of you. Every other week on Tuesday mornings, we gather uh, as a group of pastors in the prayer room and uh, we, at about 11 o'clock every other Tuesday, and, and we pray over a growing list of very real situations in your very real lives. I know that many of you are experiencing real difficulty in your lives. And when that difficulty hits, it can be totally disorienting. Right? You don't know where to turn or what to do or at times even how to breathe. That's real. It's real. And, and you, and to you, suffering this morning, suffering in your relationships, in your loss, in your chronic pain, in your unexpected twist, sometimes suffering at the hands of others, to you, James says, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming, and he's coming soon. We heard last week that our lives are a mist. Remember, Dan, with that water bottle squirted, and we, we saw the mist. But the truth is, it often doesn't feel like our lives are a mist, right? We know that they're short, but, but pain hits us, and it hurts, and it doesn't go by quickly. And loss is devastating, and suffering is terrible. And because of that, it can be an enormous temptation to turn to other things that offer temporary comfort, that, that lie to us and, and tell us they'll provide numbness or fleeting joy. Don't believe the lies. Don't believe the lies. They won't satisfy you. That thing that you want to buy, that app that you want to scroll, that vacation that you want to go on, whatever it is, they won't satisfy. They can't help you. But Jesus is coming, and things will be fixed. Everything bad will be undone. Everything painful will be healed. Everything that's sad will come untrue. Our blessed hope is that Jesus is coming again. And in the meantime, we wait patiently as the farmer. We plant our crops. We spend time in the word, in prayer, in fellowship, and in treasuring our relationship with the Almighty God. We wait, and we long for, and we groan for his return. Picture number two, James gives us, is the prophets. As a second example for us in the face of suffering, James says, consider the prophets who, in the midst of deep suffering, continued to speak in the name of the Lord. Well, in our unfamiliarity with the Old Testament, it's really easy for us to miss the extreme nature of the point that James is making here uh, for us to consider these prophets. So consider Consider this list with me uh, as we go through. And this is, this is just a few of the prophets that we, we could have talked about. So we, we have Moses, 
Uh, Moses spent 40 years wandering in the desert. You may remember he, he led the people out of uh, slavery in Egypt, and, and he was leading them to the promised land, and it was described as this land flowing with milk and honey, and they had so anticipated getting there. And then because of the disobedience of the people he was leading, uh, they, they wandered the desert for 40 years. Then Elijah, who we'll hear about uh, in next week's passage. Um, Elijah was this man of great faith, this prophet who spoke for God, and um, he prayed at one point, and God heard him, and it didn't rain for three and a half years. And then at another time, he's in this contest, and he, he called down fire from heaven, and, and fire came down from heaven, and he saw that he does these amazing things speaking for God. And then after all that happens, he's hunted and chased by this wicked queen named Jezebel, and he ends up like all scared and, and fearing for his life because he's hunted by the, one of the most powerful people in existence. Jeremiah is referred to as the suffering prophet. He was beaten, he's sentenced to death, he's put in stocks, he's, he's left to die. At one point he's put in this giant cistern and they just plop him in there because they don't like what he's talking about and he's just stuck and can't get out. Um, Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel, right? Ezekiel's wife died um, as a sermon illustration for the nation of Israel. So that's pretty rough. Um, Hosea, another prophet with a book, right? He, he was married to a prostitute as another sermon illustration for Israel because Israel's like that prostitute who continues to go back to their adultery. And sure enough, um, she continued to go back to her adultery for uh, the duration of um, their lives. And, and so Hosea dealt with this woman that he loves continually going back to her sin John the Baptist in the New Testament, right, prepared the way uh, for Jesus, and he's beheaded as a party favor, right? He's there with, uh, with Herod, and, and um, Herod's wife, he says to her, I'll give you anything you want at this great party, and she says, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter, and he delivers. So we talk about suffering, right, with the prophets. It, there's intensely painful stuff here. Losing spouses and, and repeated adultery and being beaten or killed. Forty years in the desert it like looks small on this list, but imagine 40 years. You thought you were going into this amazing land flowing with milk and honey. And, and, and we experience this disappointment when our vacations are cut short, like a kid gets sick or whatever and we have to go home. And, and it's 40 years that Moses had to lead God's whiny people in the desert. And then, because of his disobedience later, he never actually made it to the promised land. Instead of the land where they would flourish, they end up in the opposite of flourishing for 40 years. Consider these, James says. This is one of the reasons that rooting ourselves in church history and Christian history is so important. Because these stories remind us that we are not the first people to suffer. And if the Lord delays his return, we will be far from the last. Singing old songs and reading old dead authors and considering the lives of those who have gone before us anchor us and they orient us and they teach us how to think rightly and how to behave in godly ways from those who have experienced the same sufferings that we do. The prophet's and Christian history remind us that we are not at the center of the universe, and we are not the only people who have ever experienced difficulty. And so, to you who are suffering 
this morning. Again, James says, consider the prophets. Consider the prophets. You are not alone in your suffering. Men and women have gone before you and have suffered what you are suffering and have endured deep trials and difficulties. And God has been faithful to them. And, verse 11, you, like them, are counted as blessed when you persevere through suffering. Our third picture, Job, helps us understand what James means here. If you're unfamiliar with the story of Job, Job was a righteous man, the, the most righteous man in the whole world. And then God allows Satan to tempt and torment him. So Satan comes to God and he's convinced that Job is only faithful because God has blessed him so much and been so kind to him. And, and God says, nah, that's not, that's not why, but, but go ahead. You can try and get him to blaspheme my name. You can do anything you want except for you can't kill him. And so everything is taken away from Job. His family, his possessions, his health, and even his friends in their attempts to like comfort Job are terrible and they add to his problems. And so he ends up basically all alone with nothing. But through it all, Job remains faithful to God and does not curse him a single time. Listen to um, th- three examples from Job's life. So first, in, in Job chapter 1, um, he's just received three reports, right? He's been raided twice, and so all of his uh, servants and his sheep and his camels are gone. They've been run off with. And, and then the third, the third report is um, his, his kids were all feasting in this house, and a great wind came and swept away all four walls, and the house collapses, and all of his kids are dead. And here's what Job does. Listen to these verses. He says, At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Then in chapter 2, Job is covered literally from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet in sores. And he, he's sitting down on the ground and he's got this uh, broken piece of clay pot. And you remember when you were a kid and you had chicken pox and maybe your parents you know, put the oven mitts on you, but if they didn't, you're like scratching. Job was not the oven mitt kind of guy. He's got, he's got his clay pot and he's like scraping his body because he's itching so badly and he's trying to deal with this. And, and it comes to Job chapter 2 verses 9 and 10. And it says this, His wife said to him, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. And then one more. Chapter 19, Job's so-called friend Bildad uh, came to him and he gives him this long speech and he, and he basically tells him that, Job, you're a wicked man. All this stuff is happening and it's all your fault. Job concludes his rebuttal to his friend with these words from Job 19. He says, Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. 
I know that my Redeemer lives. And that in the end, he will stand on earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him. With my own eyes, I am not another. How my heart yearns within me. In the midst of all that suffering, Job yearns for God. He yearns for his Savior. Job persevered, and the Lord, who is full of compassion and mercy, blessed him greatly. At the end of Job, we see that God doubles the fortunes that he had, and and he gives him a whole bunch more livestock. He's got 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 donkeys. He has more sons and daughters. He lives 140 years, and he sees his children and their children to the fourth generation. God blesses Job greatly because he is a God who is full of compassion and mercy. And and the blessing that we have in the second coming of Jesus far outweighs the value of anything that we could be given in this life. The return of Jesus far outweighs the value of anything. See, the farmer and the prophets and Job all point us to one reality, that those who place their hope in the Lord will not be left wanting. Those who place their hope in the Lord will not be left wanting. And so as you go about your life with all its difficulty and suffering and pain, look for the coming of Jesus and consider these three pictures that James has given us. Consider the farmer who patiently labors while he waits waits for rain year after year after year. Consider the prophets who, in spite of terrible suffering and loss and persecution, continue to faithfully speak in the name of the Lord. And consider Job, who, in spite of losing everything, remained faithful and hopeful in the Lord. These men and women and their stories and so many more through church history offer wisdom and guidance as we patiently wait for the second coming of Jesus. To those who place their hope in their riches, the Lord says, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. They're terrifying words of coming judgment. But to those who are suffering, the Lord says, wait for me. I'm coming. I will rescue you, for I am full of compassion and mercy. So what do we do with all of that? Friends, we eagerly long in hope for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Your suffering is real. Your pain and your difficulty and your loss are real. And the return of Jesus Christ will make all things right again. If you're someone who's feeling the heavy conviction of placing your hope in something or someone else, repent and be forgiven. Repent and be forgiven. See, God in heaven wants a relationship with you. And nothing would make him happier and nothing would bring him more glory than forgiving you for placing your hope in lesser things. 
Our view of God can be so messed up, can't it? We have this picture that this God who we make one mistake and he's so excited to just crush us with condemnation and guilt and shame. Nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. God's heart longs for you. It longs for you to turn to him and be forgiven and be made whole and be fully satisfied in Jesus. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland says this, The cumulative testimony of the four Gospels is that when Jesus Christ sees the fallenness of the world all about him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct, is to move toward that sin and suffering, not away from it. Jesus moves towards you in your sin and suffering, not away from you. If you're stuck in sin and suffering, know that God, who is full of compassion and mercy, is moving toward you. His deep desire is to sit in that suffering and in that sin with you and bring about wholeness and healing and to rescue you. So place your hope, whether for the first time or the 500th, in him today. Let's pray.